The following message is from Bear Creek Church. More information about BCC is available at bearcreekchurch.org. Well, good morning. I want to thank you for resisting the temptation to neglect the gathering together and instead being here today. It's wonderful to worship together, isn't it? Singing these songs. Go ahead and open your Bibles to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5. I heard from many of you after last week, and you shared that, that it was helpful. You shared that you tend to struggle with legalism. If that's you and you struggle with legalism, then, then to you I would say, what's wrong with you? No, I'm just kidding. No, I, I would say, yeah, many of us do. We just don't all recognize it. What can be hard about legalism is... If we're honest, legalism kind of sounds right, doesn't it? The idea that we have these boxes to check, these rules of, of, to being justified, here's what you have to do, that, that sounds right. And again, we can be legalistic about good things. So it often sneaks up on us. We don't necessarily set out or decide one day that we're going to become legalistic. Instead, we wake up one day and we realize that we've lost sight of grace, of what Jesus has already accomplished. So today we're going to keep going in the book of Galatians and and pick up where we left off. For context, though, I'd like to actually read chapter 5 in its entirety. So recognizing that it's a long passage, I'm not going to ask you to stand for the reading of God's word, but I do encourage you to follow along. I hope you have a copy of God's word in front of you. So Galatians 5, verses 1 through 26. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision, he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love, serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another... 
Watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Verse 16. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love. Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another envying one another. Well, last week we talked about justification. We talked about the freedom that we have in Christ and that with that freedom that there are risks or ways of misunderstanding or misapplying that freedom. We could take it for granted. We could take our eyes off of Jesus and place them on ourselves. We could base our justification on our performance and also a cheap grace mentality. We discussed legalism versus license, but in the end, just the reminder that our justification is all Jesus, that we are not saved because we are good people, but all because of Jesus and his obedience, that he is who satisfied the requirements of the law. So last week was about freedom, but this week is about war. There is a war. So maybe after last week, you're thinking, okay, legalism, bad, I got it. Freedom, we are justified, and it's all the work of Christ. Now we are free. We're free to be as we should be. We're free from the bondage of sin. I got it. So now what? Well, that's the justification part, right? The now what? We are, the we are saved, so now what? What, does, what should our lives look like? We remember that we cannot be more or less justified. You can't get more justified or more saved or more finished. You can, though, be less sanctified. You can be more sanctified. You can grow in sanctification. Now, we have to resist being competitive here. It's not about how we measure up to one another. So this week, we'll be talking about that. We'll talk about this war that's within us. And we'll talk about as believers who are free, now what? The next week we'll get into Galatians, we'll continue on in Galatians and we'll look at Galatians chapter 6. As we talk about this within the context of the church, what does this look like for our interactions with one another? And specifically, one of the things that we'll touch on next week is forgiveness. Both our own and what this looks like with one another. So there's a, a teaser for next week. 
So our text this morning is Galatians 5, 16 to 26. And I want to point out a few things first. Notice that we see spirit mentioned seven times in these 11 verses. Specifically, we have verse 16 where it says, walk by the spirit. Verse 18 where it says, led by the spirit. And then we have verse 25 where it says, live by the spirit. So maybe a a good outline of this passage is this. First, we have a section again about being walked, led, lived by the spirit. Then we have a section about a life led by the flesh. And then we have a section about a life led by the spirit. So that's a way to think about our text this morning as we dive in. And remember what verses 13 to 14 said. For you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. But through what? Through love. Serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. This love is not optional. It's a command. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. In other words, we are called in our freedom to desire and seek the happiness of others with the same enthusiasm that we have for our own. But if you take this command seriously, it feels contrary to our natural inclinations. So much so, it may feel impossible that I should get up in the morning and feel as much concern for your needs as for my own seems utterly beyond my power. This is the Christian life. Caring for others as I care for myself. But it's hard. And I feel hopeless to ever live it out. Paul's answer to this discouragement, though, is found in verses 16 through 18. The secret is learning to walk by the Spirit. If the Christian life looks hard, we must remember that we are not called to live it by ourselves. We must live it by the Spirit of God. The command command of love is is not a new legalistic burden laid on our back. It's what happens freely when we walk by the Spirit. People who try to love without relying on God's spirit always wind up trying to muster out of thin air something that's not there. To try to fill a need rather than as a response to what is already in us. And so love ceases to be love. Love is not easy for us. But the good news is that it is not primarily our work but God's. We simply learn to walk by the spirit. So our text this morning begins in verse 16. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. To understand this, I think we need to begin at the end with the word flesh. What is Paul talking about when he says flesh? Well, first of all, let's talk about what he's not talking about. He is not talking about our skin or our bodies. The contrast that Paul makes between flesh and spirit is not a contrast between the physical and the spiritual but between our fallenness and our new hearts and minds granted by the Holy Spirit of God. This is not the physical body is bad and spiritual is good argument. That's not what he means when he says flesh. Flesh is the state of the unsaved. Those who are in the flesh and thus totally under the control of sinful passions. 
The flesh is the part of a believer that functions apart from and against the spirit. Flesh is the power of indwelling sin. What we are by natural birth, who we are set apart from Christ. Even though we are no longer slaves to sin, yet it is a fight to do what is right. So again, the flesh is not simply our physical body, but it includes the mind, will, and emotions, which are all subject to sin. It refers in general to our unredeemed humanness. John Piper said, The flesh is the ego which feels an emptiness but loathes the idea of satisfying it by faith. That is by depending on the mercy of God in Christ. Instead, the flesh prefers to use legalistic or licentious resources in its own power to fill its emptiness. It's our our sin nature, going back to original sin. Original sin is not the first sin, but the result of the first sin by Adam and Eve, the result of God's judgment, our fallen condition. One commentator worded it, the flesh is used at least three ways by Paul. The broadest use is a simple reference to humanness. Another use is for the physical body. The narrowest use, especially when placed in contrast to the spirit, as in our passage, is to refer to the sinful human nature, which includes the mind and soul. So if the Galatians abandon Christ and place their confidence in the law, they will be turning back, they will be turning their back to, to reliance on flesh and an existence under the law's curse. There is hope as well as warning in Paul's words. Although the desires of the flesh oppose the spirit, the desires given by the Holy Spirit deliver us from the flesh and the law. Now, by the Spirit, we will win. Yet that doesn't mean that we should be passive in, in this struggle. Verse 15 warns us that the remaining flesh has the power to cause us to devour one another. Now, maybe you're, you're sitting there and you're thinking, okay, so I'm free. I'm no longer a slave to sin, but I still sin. And when I sin, it's generally because at least in the moment, I want to sin. Sometimes I don't always feel free. So now what? And that's a good question. I'm glad you brought that up. One thing we need to get out of this passage is this. There is a war. There is a battle in the believer. Our flesh may desire sin while our heart desires the things of Christ. There is a battle within us. Now, in thinking about this, it can lead to, to two separate thoughts. The first may cause us to think when, when you do experience this fight within, you can think, man, why do I keep struggling? Why do I keep having this battle? There, there are these things I want to do and I don't do, and these things that I don't want to do that I do. Is anyone else struggling? I see all these other Christians, and they don't seem to be, to be struggling. They seem to have it all together, to have it all figured out. So you think nobody else is fighting, and that can be a danger. We need to understand that that is the Christian life that we are struggling, that we are having a battle, that we are not all winning it all the time. 
It is not that everyone else is struggling, but having victory, and you are the only one that ever fails. The Christian life does not mean we don't struggle with sin. The other danger is just the opposite. Like we talked last time about license, we can tend to think that, you know, if I think something, if I want something, if I desire something, well, it must be from the Lord because the Spirit of God is within us. And we'll come back to this, but we have to be careful to think rightly about this. We also see in verse 16 where it says, you will not, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. That's a promise. Walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Verse 17, for the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit. And the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. The passions of the sinful nature are at war with the desires of the regenerate nature. The main thing to learn from this in verse 17 is that Christians experience a struggle within. Now, if you said to yourself when I was describing the flesh, you know, well, I still have some of that left in me. It does not necessarily mean that you're not a Christian. A Christian is not a person who experiences no struggle or temptation towards sin. A Christian is a person who is at war with those, with those desires by the power of the Holy Spirit. Are you at war? Or are you content with your worldliness, with your struggles, with your flesh? To quote John Piper again, he said, conflict in your soul is not all bad. Even though we long for the day when our flesh will be utterly defunct and only pure and loving desires will fill our hearts. Yet there is something worse than the war within between flesh and spirit. Namely, no war within because the flesh controls the citadel and all the outposts. He says, praise God for the war within. Serenity in sin is death. The spirit has landed to do battle with the flesh. So take heart if your soul feels like a battlefield at times. The sign of whether you are indwelt by the spirit is not that you have no bad desires, but that you are at war with them. The sign that we are saved It's not that we have no evil desires, but that we hate them, that we want them out of our lives, that we are at war with them. Then notice at the end of verse 17, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. You get that? To keep you from doing the things you want to do. There are things that you want to do. They they look good. They promise life. And the Bible says that you should not do them. You should not satisfy the desires of your flesh. So the desire is there, and you are not to gratify or satisfy that desire. The the desire then does not necessarily go away. You're left hungry. 
you are left slightly unsatisfied. You will have unfulfilled desires. Now, doesn't that sound counter to what the world would tell us today? The world says if you have desires, those are good and natural, and you are denying yourself to not satisfy those desires, to not pursue them. You're not being true to yourself to not satisfy those desires. The world might say that if you have desires, then, well, certainly God gave those to you, and he meant for you to fulfill them. But the Bible says, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. You, if you are a Christian, hear me. You have desires in your heart right now, maybe for sex, maybe for money, maybe for power, maybe for revenge, maybe for bitterness, maybe for self-pity, maybe for something else. You have desires in your heart that are of the flesh. They are worldly. And you are not to satisfy those desires. You are, not, you are to leave those desires unfulfilled. No matter how much you want it, no matter how much you think it will make you happy, make you comfortable, make you better, no matter how much you think you deserve it, or you've earned it, or you're entitled to it, not even if you've come up with a clever way of wording it so that it sounds holy. If that desire is of the flesh, The spirit is opposed to it. And you and I should not do the very thing that we want to do. Listen, I I want you to hear this. If you're a Christian, you are a new person. You have a, a new heart. You're not a slave to unrighteousness or to sin any longer. The penalty of the sin has been paid for. The power of the sin has been abolished. Yet we have not been glorified. We are being sanctified, but we have not been glorified. So we must fight daily against the power of indwelling sin. This means that just because we have a desire, it does not mean we must act on that desire. There are things you want to do that you should not do. There is a war within you, within me, between flesh and and spirit. Verse 18, but if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. Either you, you live by the power of the Holy Spirit, which results in righteous behavior and spiritual attitudes, or by the law, which can only produce unrighteous behavior and attitudes. We are led by the spirit. It doesn't say follow the spirit, which might still be true, But that makes the emphasis us. We are doing the following. It is up to us to follow. But we are led by the Spirit. God is doing it. So then we see this this list beginning in verse 19. 
this list of works of the flesh. A couple of things before we, we look at this list. Notice that in verse 21 it says, and things like these. This is not an exhaustive list. It may feel like a long list, but it's as if Paul is saying, I could go on and on and on. This is, this is just a sample. And we sadly know this to be all too true. But also notice what Paul says in verse 19. The works of the flesh are evident or obvious. It should be clear to the Christian that these attitudes or behaviors are not consistent with the Christian life. He doesn't need to explain or justify why these things are on the list. And for those of you who have been a Christian a long time, are any of you looking at this list and going, well, I don't know. It's kind of a gray area. Some of these are a little debatable. We may debate what falls under these headings, but we don't really debate the headings. Nobody is raising their hand and saying, you know, I'd like to put in a good word for fits of anger. Feel like it gets a bad rap sometimes. And you don't need to be a Christian to recognize that this list of things, that they're, that they're not good. Even non-believers, they do not say, you know, the, the key to a functioning society is drunkenness. Or, you know, if there was just more sexual immorality in our, in our society, then we'd be better off. Of course, these are the things that leads to human flourishing. Nobody is saying that. The desire of the flesh may be hidden. That's inside. People may not see your desires, but the works of the flesh, these are evident. These are on display. So there are 15 works of the flesh listed here, beginning in verse 19. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So again, this feels like a long list and John Stott I think is helpful as he breaks these into four categories for us. He breaks them down into sex, religion, society, and then he said drink. I think we could say revelry or debauchery. So under the heading of sex, he includes sexual immorality, which refers to all illicit sexual activity, including but not limited to adultery, fornication, homosexuality, prostitution, impurity, meaning morally unclean, sensuality or licentiousness. The word originally referred to any excessive behavior or lack of restraint, but eventually became associated with sexual excess and indulgence. Then under the heading of religion, Paul includes idolatry or the, the making of an idol to worship that is not God, but is meant to replace God. Sorcery, the Greek word pharmakia, from which we get the English word pharmacy, it originally referred to drugs or medicines in general, but eventually only to mood and mind-altering drugs. Many pagan religious practices required the use of these drugs to aid in the communication with deities. 
Then maybe the heart of Paul's list are these eight works of the flesh that manifest in human society or in relationships. Enmity, hostility, ways of having hardness of heart to certain people. A hateful attitude which results in the next one, strife. Bitter conflict, sometimes, sometimes people just have to be fighting with people. Jealousy, I want what you have. Fits of anger, rivalries or selfish ambition, dissensions, divisions, envy. I don't want you to have what you have. I'm suffering, I want you to suffer. Under debauchery, we have drunkenness. Can be alcohol or drugs. I've heard it said that this may be one of the least talked about and significant sins. It can often be a joke. We chuckle as we talk about, you know, just had one too many. As though that's funny. The number of marriages, families, lives that are destroyed by addiction and by drunkenness. Often there's so much shame associated with it that the families, when there is a struggle, they they suddenly just kind of disappear. And you forget about them until one day you see a mugshot. Or you hear that this family or this couple is no longer together. Sometimes we treat our sins like pets. We cater to them. We give them cute names. We coddle them. We entertain them. Then we're shocked when they keep showing up in our lives. And we are surprised when they cause destruction. We need to see sin as ugly. As something where there is to be a battle. This means when we pray and confess sins, we name them. We're not just stubborn. We are prideful and think that we are God. We are not just prone to exaggerate. We're liars. We need to stop minimizing our sins. They are not our friend. They are out to destroy us. There is a war, and those sins are not on the side of the Holy Spirit. But Paul goes on in our text with verse 21. I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now we hear this and maybe we think, now wait a minute. I'm angry sometimes. Does that mean I'm going to hell? I'm envious at times. Does that mean that I'm not going to heaven? This is where it's helpful to understand the difference between indwelling sin and reigning sin. The difference between your flesh and what the spirit is fighting against. You, you say, oh, I hate that I was like that with my children. I hate that I, that I acted like that. I hate that I, that I looked at that. Why did I do that? Lord, help me. That's the spirit fighting against the flesh. That's a sign that You have a war within you. What Paul is talking about is the person that has reigning sin. There's no fight. There's no warfare. Their lives are marked by these works of the Spirit. Without fight, without repentance, you are not pleading that this sin be plucked from you because the Spirit is not at work in you. For the Christian, sin no longer has the same power. Sin no longer reigns. 
but sin still remains. We need to be repulsed by this list. We need to see this list, and we don't chuckle at these things. We don't talk about them in a way that minimizes the sin that these are. Sometimes we talk about ourselves with, as we have weaknesses or quirks. But we're not always repulsed by these because we have so sanitized them in our own minds that they're not a big deal. Sin is a big deal. Sin is ugly. We don't want to be tainted by that ugliness. If you are a Christian, you have the spirit within you. So you have what you need to stop. Sin doesn't have the same power over you that it once did. You're not under the yoke of slavery or sin anymore. So Paul started with a a vice list or a list of sins, and then he goes into a grace list. He lists the sin first as if to say, you have to to deal with that, you have to fight that. Then that will be replaced with good fruit. So verse 22, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. So now we are dealing with this contrast. Before we had works of the flesh. They were ugly, and it's obvious that they are bad. Now we have the fruit of the Spirit, and these are beautiful. Who wouldn't want to be identified in these ways? Now, isn't it interesting that when Paul is describing what does a Christian look like, or what does someone filled with the Spirit, walking in the Spirit, controlled by the Spirit, look like, he describes character. He doesn't describe our giftedness. He describes how we act, how we treat others. He doesn't describe the work of the Spirit as a a to-do list. This is not another checklist for the legalist to get excited about. It does not say, you know, you pray more, you give more, you care for widows more, you evangelize more. Those are good things. But that's not what is listed as fruit. Those are more likely the results of fruit. I find it, it freeing that this is not a to-do list. It's about your character. When we might be tempted to feel overwhelmed by another, by another list of ways that we fall short, even when we're busy, even when we have limited time, limited resources, limited physical ability, these fruits can and should still be present in our lives. Love. This is talking about choosing to love, referring not to an emotional affection, but to respect, devotion, and affection that leads to willing self-sacrificial service. Joy. To be sure, the joy of the Spirit is first and foremost joy in our Lord Jesus. But genuine joy in Christ overflows to all who are adopted into his family. It's all of us. The peak of our joy, however, is not simply in being with God's people, but in seeing them look like Jesus. Complete my joy, Paul writes in the Philippians. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, 
having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Peace. Do you strive to maintain the unity of the spirit, even if there's a personal cost? Those who walk by the spirit then do not grieve him by tearing down what he has built up. But rather, as we see in Romans 14, so let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. The inner calm that results from confidence in one's saving relationship with Christ. That's peace. Patience. Long-suffering is another word, another way of saying this. As a fruit of the Spirit, patience is, is more than just the ability to sit calmly in traffic or to wait at the doctor's office well past your appointment time. Patience is the inner spiritual strength that enables us to receive an offense in the face and then look right over it. Patient people are slow to anger even when confronted with severe and repeated offenses. Kindness. This fruit of the Spirit is not yet matured in us unless we are, we are ready to show kindness, not only to those who will one day thank us, that's easy, but also to the ungrateful and the evil. In Luke chapter 6, it says, But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, And your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. The kind are able to give a blessing, to receive a curse in return, and then go on giving blessings. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Goodness a general disposition to be useful, generous, and helpful. It means working for the benefit of others, not oneself. Faithfulness. The faithfulness of, God, of God's people consists likewise in our making every effort to do what we say we will do, even when it hurts. Gentleness, also translated meekness. It is a humble and gentle attitude that is patiently submissive in every offense while having no desire for for revenge or retribution. Self-control. This is a discipline given by the Holy Spirit that allows Christians to resist the power of the flesh. So verse 23 says, against such things there is no law. That sounds odd, doesn't it? That he needs to say that there's, that there's no law against love, that there's no law against gentleness. He's saying that there's no new law. There's not a, a new set of legal requirements. He just got done saying that the law cannot save. And so he is saying that, that this is what marks a Christian. This is what we should look like. But don't look at this as a law, but look at it as the work of the Spirit in the hearts of believers. There is more freedom. Now, maybe you became a believer later in life, and this is more noticeable. You can see before, you know, I was saved and I I was like that, but now, now I'm like this. 
But the good news for believers is that this is the work of the Spirit. This is what the Spirit does in you when you are saved. This is the work that the Spirit is continually doing in you. But again, this is not to say that we are passive in the fight against the flesh. We grow in these areas, and this is part of our sanctification. Sanctification being a progressive work says that we grow in these areas. We are growing. Justification is a declaration of God about us. Sanctification is the work of God within us. Consider for a moment what the Westminster Confession says. Their ability to do good works is not at all of themselves, but wholly from the Spirit of Christ. That they may be enabled thereunto besides the graces they have already received, there is required an actual influence of the same Holy Spirit to work in them to will and to do of his good pleasure. Yet are they not hereupon to grow negligent, as if they were not bound to perform any duty unless upon a special motion of the Spirit. But they ought to be diligent in stirring up the grace of God that is, that is in them. The ability is from the Spirit. We don't take credit for that. Yet we are not negligent. We stir up. In verse 24 of our text, it says, And those who belong to Christ... Sorry, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Those who belong to Christ Jesus. We belong to Jesus. Let that sink in a bit. If you are a Christian, if you are in Christ, you belong to Christ Jesus. There's comfort in that. We see the word have, past tense. It has happened. Have crucified the flesh. It doesn't say those who need to crucify, but they have already crucified the flesh. I think what Paul means in verse 24 when he says the flesh has been crucified is that the decisive battle has been fought and won by the spirit. The flesh is as good as dead. Its doom is sure. Here, Paul states that the flesh has been executed, yet the spiritual battle still rages in the believer. Paul looks back at the cross where the death of the flesh and its power to reign over believers was actually accomplished. Paul has us recall what has happened in the past. Recall who you once were. Recall what Christ has done for you and in you. The power that the flesh had has been crucified, has been killed on the cross of Jesus. The power of the flesh, the power of the sin with its passions and desires has been killed. It's the power that no longer has the same power. Verse 25, if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. There is a war. The war is between the Spirit and the flesh. 
but we are not passive. We are not passive in our sanctification. We walk in the Spirit, keep in step with the Spirit or follow the Spirit. This brings to mind daily or ongoing following the Spirit, pursuing of Jesus, worshiping of God. Yes, we still struggle with sin. Sin is still present, but there is a war. And because there is a war, because sin doesn't still have the same power, we grow. We sin less. We become aware of new sin, and we pursue the Lord. We pray. We spend time in his word. We do not neglect the gathering together of the saints. We confess our sins. We work at fighting sin and pursuing the fruit of the Spirit. Not because that makes us saved or even makes us more saved, but because we love Jesus and we hate sin. We want to grow to be more and more like Jesus. The Holy Spirit sanctifies us, and so we walk in him. Let's pray. Lord God, we come to you now sinners, but not without hope. Help us to take our sins seriously. Help us to desire the fruit of the Spirit. We know that there is a war and that there is victory in you. Help our unbelief. We confess that we have sinned against you. By your Holy Spirit, come and work repentance into our hearts. Help us to see you as you are, with outstretched arms, a loving heart and power to save. Help us to see Jesus, the friend of sinners, and to follow him more faithfully. As we have received him, so strengthen us to walk in him, depend on him, commune with him, and be conformed to him. Give us an experience of your grace that makes us bold for others, that we might joyfully tell our friends and neighbors of your saving mercy. Help us, Lord, to walk in a way that brings you glory, that brings you honor. Help us to live loving, obedient lives. Help us to love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourself. Help us to know that this is the fulfillment of the law. It's fulfilled by loving obedience. It's in Jesus' holy name that we pray. Amen.